0: Good morning. As we get started this morning, I want to let you know something. There are persons here who struggle when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. They struggle with maintaining a heart fully committed to Christ. They struggle against sin and disobedience. They struggle against pride. They struggle with a right understanding of what it means to be a disciple. And I know that for a fact... Because I'm one of them. And if Paul is to be believed, if the Apostle John is to be believed, so are you. Each of us struggles with this concept of discipleship and what it means and what that calling really is for a believer. It doesn't mean you never overcome sin, at least certain sins. It doesn't mean that you never grow and you don't experience sanctification, but it does mean that we need to remind ourselves of the seriousness and the reality of what discipleship means for us as believers, for those that claim to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, to be Christ followers. The, The word Christian literally means little Christ. In Jesus's ministry he was consistently faced with those who struggled to understand the real meaning of discipleship and what it required. As we look at two of those instances this morning My desire, my hope, my prayer is that you will be exhorted and encouraged to follow Christ with the right motivations, the right desires, so as to not cheapen his grace. Read along with me, if you would, Matthew 8, beginning of verse 18 through verse 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you will go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Pray with me. Father, as we consider discipleship this morning and what that calling means may we have ears to hear maybe we be desirous of obeying and putting into practice in our lives faithful obedience in light of what we study what we see this morning may your spirit do its work to convict to exhort to encourage to rebuke us and may we have soft hearts this morning in your name amen well, if you remember, Jesus is in Capernaum. Having come down from the sermon, preaching that Sermon on the Mount, coming down from the mountainside, he made his way into Capernaum, which more or less functioned as a home base. He often went through there, would stay there, while traveling through Galilee. He had been staying at the home of Peter's home, where his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, was also residing, as we saw the healing of Peter's mother-in-law a couple weeks ago. He's been teaching, he's been healing all types of sickness and disease. Well, here in verse 18, chapter 8, Matthew tells us that Jesus saw the crowd around him, this crowd that had been building, coming to observe these miracles. And so Jesus gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Now, Capernaum lies on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. The the sea is taller than it is wider. It's about 21 kilometers tall, or about 13 miles, a little over 13 miles. We learn in verse 28 that when they went to the other side, they were going to travel to the country of the Gadarenes, or Gadara, after sailing. And Gadara, it really was the other side. It's the southernmost point of the sea. So you had from almost the extreme north to the extreme south, they were getting ready to set sail. This would have been a trip of roughly four to six hours, depending upon favorable winds and No other issues which as we'll see next week they encountered a great storm which certainly made issues for the sailing. Just for perspective it's not even a four hour drive to Nashville from Atlanta. So from a time perspective Jesus really wanted to get away. He wanted to get away from the crowds by a significant distance. Now the question becomes why? Why did Jesus want to separate from the crowd by such a distance? What was the motivation? It says that when he saw the crowd, that became the reason, the motivation for wanting to travel to the other side of the sea. So why? What was it about this crowd, this increasing crowd, that motivated Jesus to separate by such a distance and taking the ship so it's hard to sail, How hard to follow? The text doesn't tell us explicitly, but I think these next two interactions we see in verses 19 through 22 that we're going to look at this morning before Jesus and some of the disciples set sail provides helpful insight into why Jesus wanted to pull away from the crowds, and it's linked to this concept of discipleship. So having said that, let's take some time to look at these two persons who come to Jesus as he prepares to set sail. Verse 19 tells us that a scribe came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Notice that the scribe first says he will follow in the future tense. That is, he has not been previously following Jesus. He is not currently counted among the disciples. So this is not a disciple. This is a scribe. Now also know that the very fact that this scribe comes offering to follow Jesus is a bit of a surprise. Especially if you've read much of the Gospels, or spent much time in church, it's surprising because scribes were composed of the persons who were opposed to Jesus' ministry. We find them throughout the Gospels trying to trick and trap Jesus with their words and their questions, to test him, to try him, to try and turn the people against him, to try and make him slip into blasphemy. The scribes, along with the Pharisees, were determined to get rid of Jesus as his ministry continued and progressed. These were the persons whom Jesus himself called whitewashed tombs. That is, you look good on the outside and you have death and decay on the inside. He called them, you brood of vipers. I'm not sure I've even called someone that. And at Jesus' crucifixion, it was the scribes along with the chief priests and the elders who were mocking him, saying he could not even save himself. These were not his best friends. So it's somewhat remarkable and certainly unique that this scribe is coming to Jesus, wanting to follow him, supposedly, as a disciple. Note, too, that from the crowd's perspective and from the scribe's perspective, what he's offering to do to follow Jesus as a disciple, is, in their perspective, pretty significant. It's a pretty significant sacrifice. It would have appeared that he was going backwards in terms of professional advancement. He was taking a salary cut, a demotion, if you were. He would potentially be ostracized by other scribes. In light of that, the question we really need to ask, though, especially when we read one verse later, is, is it true that the scribe's intentions were really so self-abasing and humble? Was he really coming because he believes in the authority and ministry of Christ and because he's willing to give up all that he has and seek first the kingdom of God? Is that why he is coming? Let's see if the text allows us to answer this question. We right away notice Matthew doesn't tell us anymore about the scribe, at least not explicitly. The scribe is unnamed. No history is given. In fact, all that is explicitly noted about the scribe is that he came and uttered this singular expression, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Yet despite the paucity of information, a great deal can be deduced from this brief interaction and Jesus' response. I'm starting right away with the address. How does he address Jesus? He says, teacher. Now, as a scribe, that was a high honor to call another teacher, to consider Jesus a peer, as it were, in terms of social standing. And yet, this address really exposes the limit of belief of this scribe. Because what did he not call Jesus? Jesus. What had the leper called Jesus? What had the centurion called Jesus? What does the disciple who follows this scribe call Jesus? They call him Lord. There was no equivocation, but rather recognition of the divine origin, the divine authority, and the divine power of the Lord Jesus when the leper, the centurion, and this other disciple come to him, but it is not found in the address of this scribe. Even the demoniacs in Gadara that we'll look at in a couple of weeks recognize that Jesus was the Son of God. However, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there is no record of any true disciple referring to Jesus as teacher. It was a manner of address reserved for those who were not well disposed to Jesus, such as the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. There is no example of a true disciple saying and addressing him, teacher. They refer to him as Lord, Master. The scribe stops stops short of declaring Jesus Lord. In other words, the scales have still not fallen from his eyes. He is still walking in darkness, unable to see the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. The scribe is attracted to the ministry, to the miracles, perhaps even to the message. But it is merely fascination, not transformation at this point. So then we're left to ask, if he has not been spiritually quickened and made alive, why does he wish to follow Jesus? Perhaps you may even say, well, I hear what you're saying, but isn't that a little bit harsh and judgmental? You've jumped to the conclusion that this is the type of person, that he's an unbeliever, that he's really motivated by something else. I mean, doesn't the scribe's desire to follow Jesus contradict those observations I just made? And the conclusions I've proposed? I mean, the scribe likely supposed that he was already paying a high price in volunteering to follow Jesus. I mean, such a decision was going to cost popularity in some circles. Going through the process of discipleship after already being a scribe, having previously been a disciple of some other scribe, would be humbling. It would be time-consuming. Well, the answer is no. I don't believe this his response, his desire to follow Jesus, undermines the conclusions I've stated about the scribe's actual lack of faith. And I think Jesus' answer to this scribe validates those conclusions regarding the spiritual disposition of this scribe. Note how Jesus responds in verse 20. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's it. That's the sum of the response. And what might at first be described as somewhat elusive or evasive of an answer, Jesus describes the living conditions of foxes, birds, and himself to answer. Clear as mud, right? However, this response by Jesus gives us a lot to unpack. Notice first the adversative but in the midst of Jesus' response. You see, Jesus is correcting something about this man's thinking. In other words, already we're being told to recognize and realize something has to be corrected. That's why he says, but, there, in the midst of his response. Jesus is correcting something about the man's thinking. And that thinking has a correlation with the dwellings of the foxes and birds. Now, this is metaphor, figurative language. And so we ask, what is the limit of this analogy that he's making? Well, simply put, this scribe believed that following Jesus offered security, comfort, and ease. Just as the fox has a hole to which he continually returned for comfort and security... Just as the bird can return to its nest in the trees and the branches, safe off the ground, and the relative security that it provides to raise newly hatched young in peace, this scribe expected to find earthly comfort and ease by following Jesus. You see, his offer to follow was no selfless offer of discipleship. It was a carefully weighed, calculated decision that to this scribe offered greater earthly comfort and security than he was going to be giving up. The scribe had observed days, perhaps weeks, of Jesus' miracle working in and around Capernaum. He watched the popularity of Jesus grow. He was amazed with this healing power. Remember, Matthew is at this point, he, he, he highlighted the teaching ministry of Christ with the Sermon on the Mount. He's now been highlighting the healing and miracle working Ministry of Christ, starting there in Capernaum, and he's continuing in the midst of this. So all of the popularity, all of the amassing of the crowds is around this healing ministry. That's what the scribe has been observing. Scribes and teachers lived off the benevolence of their students and the people. A popular scribe and teacher had the ability to amass great wealth, power, and influence. In fact, the scribes as a whole carried great authority within Israel. So this scribe seeks to seize upon this growing popularity and that old adage, proximity to power is power. I mean, if Jesus can heal all sickness and disease, then if I'm one of his disciples, I'm never going to get sick. Or if I am, I'm going to be healed instantly. I don't have to worry any longer about sickness or disease. Additionally, I can enjoy the comfort and influence that is sure to follow one with this power. And so Jesus' answer reveals to us the motive of the scribe's heart. He had observed the miracles of Jesus, believes that Jesus will use this power for his own self-promotion, his own comfort, his own stability, his own ease in this life, and he wants to follow Jesus because he expects comfort, ease, authority, and more as a follower. In other words, he's coming to Jesus not because of his great need for a savior, but because of his great desire for ease and comfort in this life. And it's perhaps here that we can begin to see why Jesus desires to leave the crowds. They're increasing in size, but they're not growing in faith. They're not coming to Jesus because he can save them from their sin. The crowds are growing because they believe proximity to Jesus means safety, ease, and comfort in this life. They were no longer looking for the kingdom to come, but they wanted a kingdom now, the scribe stands as an example of the crowds from which Jesus was temporarily fleeing. You may have been in a relationship like that before with a friend, a coworker, worker someone else, where you realize the relationship is one-sided. You are simply being used. So Jesus desires to leave. But in his leaving, he teaches this scribe and those in the crowd that to follow him means to forsake comfort and ease, not pursue it. As Leon Morris notes, discipleship means forsaking present securities and adventuring into the unknown. Like Abram, before he was Abraham, was called out of Ur the Chaldeans to a place he did not know. So discipleship requires us to walk by faith. Not with the promise of ease and comfort in this life. The promise that it's anything but. The promise we have is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. theologian named Abin Saeed noted, The crowds and the scribe do not understand that follow means Gethsemane, Golgotha, and the tomb. There will be no comfortable settled life for one who truly follows Jesus in this world. It does not mean there will not be peace ever, but it is not earthly peace. Jesus makes that clear a few chapters later in Matthew 10, 34, where he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, there's an important parenthetical here we need to address. When correcting the scribe, Jesus uses the title Son of Man. Now I say it's a parenthetical because we need to define what this means. What does he mean by the term Son of Man and why would he use it here in this response? Well, this expression, Son of Man, has received a lot of attention because it is somewhat unique. It wasn't an expected messianic term, at least not from what we can tell. At least not one that first century Israel did. Whether they should or not is another question that we may be able to answer here in a moment. It's also received a lot of attention because of the frequency with which Jesus employs it in describing himself. You don't find others describing Jesus this way. You find Jesus using it of himself. So briefly, I want to show you what I believe is the significance of this expression. And I'm going to do that by stating first what I believe it signifies. And then take you to a few Old Testament texts which would demonstrate this significance. So this term, Son of Man, put succinctly, is an expression that is going to bring together two important realities regarding Jesus Christ. First, it brings together the humility of the Incarnation with secondly, the promise of the anointed ruler and Messiah. Now, how does it do that? Well, it's a title title and expression that uniquely highlights these two Old Testament expectations, the suffering servant and the Messiah who reigns as king. Turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a well-known psalm of David, Perhaps particularly well-known because it's quoted by the writer of Hebrews. There David marvels at God's care for man. And notice what he says. Beginning in verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And he goes on to say, you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. In verse 4, we see the use of this expression, son of man, to highlight the earthiness of man. The term for man used at the beginning of the verse, where it says, what is man, that you take thought of him. That's actually another term for man. There's two terms for man or humankind in the Old Testament. There's anosh and there's adam may recognize adam because of adam anosh emphasizes specifically the transience the frailty of man while the term adam is closely related to adama the ground the earthiness the ground from which man was taken to which he returns emphasizing again the transience of man the lowliness of man it doesn't get much lower than the dirt it's likewise used, son of man that is, in Numbers 23:19, to designate the difference between God and man. Job uses the expression son of man several times to speak of the humility and the lowliness of man. Isaiah 51:12 uses son of man to describe the transience of man who is like grass that fades away. And throughout Ezekiel, God refers to Ezekiel as son of man to emphasize the frailty and the transience of Ezekiel. The neediness of Ezekiel. The lowliness of Ezekiel compared to him. And so we see that this term, Son of Man, contains within it a humbling aspect, a humbling characteristic, a lowliness. But now turn with me to Daniel 7. Look down in verse 13, we see here uh, the other side of the title, Son of Man. In Daniel 7, Daniel has another, vision, another of his visions in which he sees God, described as the ancient of days, ruling and reigning over all creation with the worship of myriads and myriads before him. And it's in the midst of this vision that we read verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's in the midst of that vision that we read there, one like the son of man was coming. He came before the Ancient of Days, was presented before him, and to him was given this dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's obvious from the very fact that God will not share his glory with another. This must be the Son of God. And he's described as one like a Son of Man. Now turn with me to Psalm 80. Just in case there is any doubt that this expression concerned Jesus and was messianic, Psalm 80, beginning down in verse 14, reads, O God of hosts, turn again now. We beseech you, look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. Who is this? upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Then, at that time, when this Son of Man is made strong, we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord, God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came as the light which shined in the darkness. Summing it up, this expression, this title, Son of Man, which Jesus uses here in Matthew 8, perfectly encapsulates the two realities of Jesus Christ. His extreme humility combined with his divine authority. The suffering Messiah, the Son of God in human flesh, who will one day reign as Lord over all creation for all eternity. Now for the scribe, one who was versed in the scriptures, I do not think this reference to Son of Man would have been missed. It would have been a rebuke to the fact he did not correctly address Jesus as Lord to begin with. It would have highlighted how grievously he had misunderstood the ministry of the one he said he would follow and the meaning of discipleship. Perhaps most poignantly, we can note that throughout Jesus' ministry, though there was no place to lay and rest his head, that is, there was no place that he could call home He eventually did rest his head. John uses this verb lay or rest in John 19.30 with regard to the head of Christ. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he rested his head and gave up his spirit. As one commentator noted, it was there on the cross that the master found the resting place that he did not have throughout his entire ministry until it was finished. Matthew is clearly unfolding for us the real meaning of discipleship. So the question is, how does this change how you and I live from this moment forward? It's not enough to simply understand the story. It's not enough to simply understand the intent. It's not enough to see the blindness of the scribe. We must act upon it. But what does that action look like? What does it look like to act with regard to this truth, this reality, what we've seen about the cost of discipleship and the misunderstanding of the scribe? Well, to begin with, we must recognize and respond to the lordship of Christ, the authority of him As Lord. Don't be like the scribe who sought the benefits of Christ without submitting to the Lordship of Christ. What else does it mean? It means obedience. Does your life demonstrate Jesus as Lord, or does it demonstrate that you serve yourself or someone or something else? Is coming to church, claiming to be a Christian, something you do because it makes you comfortable? Is that what you're seeking on this earth? Or is it part of your obedience of Christ so that you might serve him as Lord? I challenge you to come to church to be uncomfortable. And by that I mean, don't just do what comes naturally. Don't just do what's easy. Reach out to others. Pour yourself into the lives of others. Make yourself uncomfortable. Make less of yourself. I have to remind myself of this. Does how you use your time and your finances demonstrate that you are serving Christ? If someone were to get a statement of your time and how you spend it, what would they say is your ambition? Or what if they got a statement, a copy of your bank statement? What would they say you were serving? Would there be clear evidence that Christ is Lord? This is one of the reasons, by the way, why faithfully and regularly giving within the context of the church is expressed over and over again throughout the New Testament. To give joyfully, to give regularly, to give continually. It's not because God needs the money. God can do it, whatever he wants. He's done that miraculously in many different ways. He doesn't need your finances because he's somehow poor and needy. But rather, it becomes an expression. And it's a command in the New Testament. Because it exposes our faithfulness as disciples. Well, as Jesus turns to get in the boat, he is interrupted by another person. This time, it's not a scribe, it's not a Pharisee, it's not a Sadducee, it's not an enemy. It's one who is called by Matthew, a disciple. Who asks that before departing, he be allowed to bury his father. The person coming is markedly different. It says one who is described as already following Christ. And note, too, that his address to Christ does not equivocate, but declares that Jesus is Lord. Perhaps having heard the retort to the scribe moments earlier, this disciple desires to rightly recognize and acknowledge the authority of Christ in his address. However, as we'll see from the response of Jesus, while this disciple's lips made the right profession of Christ's authority as Lord, his heart and inward motivation did not, at this moment in time, match that profession. Now, at first glance, this disciple's request seems perfectly reasonable, doesn't it? Allow me to go and bury my father. What hard-hearted person would refuse such a request? The apparent reasonableness of it makes Jesus' response sound harsh and unloving, doesn't it? Let's, Let's just be honest for a second, pretend that you don't have to sound like the perfect Christian. It sounds harsh, doesn't it? This is where context and understanding the culture of first century Israel becomes helpful. Studies from modern rural Middle Eastern peasant culture indicate that to bury one's father is a traditional idiom that referred specifically to the duty of a son to remain at home and care for his parents until they were laid to rest. As Kenneth Bailey notes, the phrase bury my father was a colloquialism for let me go complete my filial, that is sonship obligation, until My father dies. It was not something that was necessarily on the verge of happening. Note, too, the expression let the dead bury their dead. Much has been made over this expression, and I'll comment only briefly by noting this. First, there are others who can handle the burial. So, when the time for burial comes, which is not right now, there are others to handle these responsibilities. The reference to dead performing the burial is most likely a reference to spiritual deadness. In other words, those who have not been called and experience the quickening of the spirit can attend to these matters, which are of less importance to this disciple who is spiritually alive and being called to follow Christ. What we see is that things are not as they first appear. This disciple is not asking for a quick reprieve to go bury an immediately deceased father, but for an indefinite leave to take care of family until the passing of his father sometime in the future. In light of this, it helps us to more clearly understand Jesus' response. An ancient church father, Cyril of Alexandria, noted with regard to this verse, whoever wishes to serve God must not let any ties of kinship become an excuse or grounds of preoccupation. For not following Christ. Christ himself, for the benefit of those who were with him, even slighted his own mother and brother, saying, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And such one is my mother. Chrysostom, who was a fourth century leader and preacher of the church, offered helpful insight and noted that Jesus' response would only be harsh and absurd if the call for discipleship was less important than burying a father. Chrysostom brings into stark relief the reality that following Jesus is a higher priority than any earthly commitment. So let's put this into another situation. Just as a soldier does not leave the battlefield in the moment of battle to go bury a family member, because what he is doing right now is much more urgent, it's the more pressing responsibility. So Jesus tells this disciple, there is before him a more urgent and pressing responsibility to follow me. Jesus is here questioning the faithfulness of this disciple. While family obligation was important, following Jesus is even more important. Family and family obligations take a backseat to faithfulness to Christ. Now, in applying this, it's important to remember this is narrative. Matthew is teaching an important truth, but Jesus is not speaking to Directly, He's speaking indirectly and by implication to all of us, but he's not speaking directly to every person sitting here. He's not telling every one of us to abandon family and forsake familial responsibilities offhand. In fact, what has Jesus just come from doing, according to Matthew? Now, some time has passed, but in the text, what just happened? He went back to Peter's home to take care of Peter's mother-in-law. So he cares about family. So don't think he doesn't care about family. That's not it in the least. What does he do when he's on the cross? He looks down and sees his mother. And he looks at John and says, John, care for my mother. She is now your mother. Mother, he is now your son. He cares about family. He cared about his mother in that Middle Eastern culture and context. Mary being cared for. So it's not that he doesn't care. We don't abandon family haphazardly. What we must do, though, is prioritize submission to Christ and to his word above family, friends, and anything or anyone else. I also want to be clear that we don't know what happened after this response of Christ to this disciple. Because this person is described as a disciple, it's quite likely that he immediately responded and climbed right into the boat. Like each of us, we need to be exhorted and rebuked at times by Scripture, even those of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, don't we? I started this morning. Every one of us struggles with the reality of being a faithful disciple. We need those responses. We need those rebukes. We need them from one another. We need them from Scripture in order to grow in holiness and sanctification. We need correction to our thinking and our behavior. The question becomes is how do you respond to correction? We don't know what this disciple did and how exactly he responded, but we know how he should have responded. So how do you respond to correction? Do you bend to God's word and to the faithful, godly rebuke of a fellow brother and sister? Or do you stiffen your neck in pride and continue on your way, continuing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but by denying it through how you live? In fact, speaking of ways you deny Christ by how you live, one of the greatest dangers for believers in denying Christ with their actions while professing Christ as Lord with their lips today is probably social media. Whether it be the posts shared, the comments made, or the debates which are entered, I would suggest that there are many persons who claim Christ as Lord with their lips who are hardly recognizable as Christians in social media. Matthew's presented us with two conversations and interactions here, where Jesus masterfully, in somewhat absurd responses, at least the first one, foxes and birds, rebukes the false understanding of discipleship and sets a high standard for any true disciple. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German churchman who eventually suffered martyrdom by the Nazis for his opposition to Hitler's policies, called this false understanding of discipleship cheap grace. He said, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. As we look at this text and we meditate upon these words this week, may we not cheapen the grace of God, but rather be faithful to follow Christ. I encourage you, along with exhorting myself, to submit to Christ's lordship and live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And I want to say, if you're here this morning and you're like the scribe, you're able to call Jesus a teacher. You can call him a good man, a wise man, but you cannot call him Lord or you have not yet recognized him as Lord, then I implore you to confess your sins. Turn from pursuing your own agenda, your own pleasures, your own way in this life and instead pursue Christ. Pursue obedience to him, making him known. Don't settle for the counterfeit cheap grace. Don't settle for what this world offers. But instead, be like the merchant who sold all that he had to purchase the pearl of great value. Be willing to give everything up to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then true peace, eternal peace will be added. True riches, eternal riches will be added. All these things will be added when we rightly prioritize Christ in our discipleship. J.C. Ryle wrote, It is not open sin or open unbelief which robs robs Christ of his professing servants, so much as it is the love of the world, the fear of the world, the cares of the world, the business of the world, the money of the world, the pleasures of the world, and the desire to keep in touch with the world. This is the great rock on which thousands of persons are continually making shipwreck. They do not object to any article of the Christian faith, They do not deliberately choose evil and openly rebel against God. They hope somehow to get to heaven at last, and they think it proper to have some religion, but they cannot give up their idol. They must have the world. And so after running well, and bidding fair heaven, well, boys and girls, they turn aside when they become men and women and go down the broad way which leads to destruction. They begin with Abraham and Moses, and they end with Demas and Lot's wife. Let's go forth this morning with a renewed zeal to make Christ as Lord known both through our lips and our actions as his disciples. Let nothing hinder us from running the race that is set before us, and to make following Christ our chief ambition, no matter the cost, no matter what we have to give up, let us obey him.